be the last time I get to say that for a little while. We, uh, it is always a monumental day when you come to the last verses in a book. Ecclesiastes 7.8 says that the end of a matter is better than its beginning, um, but I doubt that it applies to something like preaching through a book. Uh, it is good to finish things, but I, I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed our journey through this epistle. So instructive, so helpful, so encouraging. Uh, my life has been shaped by it. My view of ministry has been shaped by it. One of the biggest impacts for sure that I have seen in this book is uh, in, in looking at the Apostle Paul and considering the Philippians' love for him and him for them, uh, it has stirred me still to greater love for Christ and for his people, for the common life that we share together as we pursue Christ and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I've, uh, I've got a clearer picture in my head than ever before of the centrality of the church and her purpose. Um, I'm more committed than ever to, to seeing the unity of the Spirit um, and the bond of peace pursued in our midst. Um, I, I, am, I am eager to do, as, as Paul called us to in this letter, to stand together, to strive together, to suffer together. I've been moved, frankly, by Paul's heart for the Lord and his willingness to suffer on the Lord's behalf. I've been moved by his deep love for the people of Christ. One thing that always stands out to me, and we'll get here in a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Paul's love for the church, but not just the fact that he loved the church. I think we expect that in some ways, right? And rightfully. But Paul, if you look letter by letter, book by book, what, what bleeds through in Paul all the time is, is verbal, uh, a verbal conveyance of that love. And, and that is something where I'm hoping that I can grow, that we can grow. He openly spoke his affection for his people. Um, you can't miss that. You can't miss the, the heart of Paul toward the Corinthians pleading with them, saying, look, my heart is open to you. Open yours wide to me as well. Paul to the Thessalonians, calling them his joy and his, his crown, speaking to them as a nursing mother does her own children. Uh, he conveyed the depth of his love and his affection for them, his desire to be with them and their desire to be with him. You see him in the book of Acts on his knees in prayer with the church before he departs from Jerusalem when a prophet had said that this is going to be your last trip to Jerusalem. You're not coming back. And you see the people weeping and pleading with Paul, don't go. And Paul's heart in all of that saying to people, look, I'm, I, I, am, I am eager even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? There's an affection among the people of God that if you're in Christ, you know it. You know it in your gut. You know it in your soul. And so this is important for us. I, I'm going to take a few minutes to review a few things today, and I'm hoping that you'll hang with me because it's very important as we come to the final couple of verses of this letter to be reminded of a few things from the Philippians' situation. You remember that Paul wrote to this people who were, who were joined to Christ and to one another through faith in the gospel. And this church was faithful in so many ways, but they were also beginning to fracture. There, were, there was evidence in their midst of, of some brokenness relationally. There was some relational strife among them. If you read through the lines of this epistle, you see that in the things that Paul addresses that you can deduce that this beloved church was, 
was beginning to, to struggle in some ways. There was some factionalism. There was some conflict, some division within the body. They were tempted to disunity. They were, they were tempted toward individualism. You remember they were beginning to suffer at the hands of some opponents, and that suffering brings pressure, and you know what happens under that kind of pressure when suffering begins to be encountered in the church. It either drives you together or it drives you apart. And some of the Philippians had fallen into kind of a selfish survivalism. They had turned inward. They had grown protectionistic, if you will. They were given, as Charles prayed this morning, they were given to complaining. They were given to grumbling. They were given to disputing among themselves. They had false teachers in their midst, and that caused difficulty and was beginning to divide, perhaps, out some of the body into various camps. And then there were those two prominent women whose names are forever recorded in Scripture for being at odds with one another, Yodi and Syntyche, and they had this very public disagreement. And so Paul writes to this church for all kinds of reasons, but not the least of which, to provide both a remedy and a preventative for the division that is going on in their midst. And what I love is that he does it so pastorally. He doesn't just tell them, hey, quit messing around and get your act together. He, he begins very wisely as a shepherd by demonstrating the very sort of thing that he wants to see in them. He begins to express in his letter this very personal, warm, affectionate appeal to the church. And I, I just, this is ground we have covered, but I want you to see it again. Look at how he, is, as, a, as a good shepherd, begins to gather the sheep at Philippi together into, into one pen, if you will. And he begins with this emphasis on the word all. Look with me. We'll begin at chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul's love for the saints here comes through so, so loudly, you hardly need to develop it at all. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, and that is a you all, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you all will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. This just begins to ooze, doesn't it? For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray that your love may abound still more and more. He says in verse 25, I will remain and continue with you all for the progress of the faith. He says it a couple of times in chapter 2. But Paul, we ought to pick this up right from the very beginning. And again, I understand we're going over old ground. But, but take it to heart, brothers and sisters, that when when Paul speaks about the church, he does not do so like so many in our day who think of it primarily as a place I attend, I give a couple coins, I put them in the pot, I pay attention to a lecture, and then I make my way out as quickly as possible because I've got to get home to the game. Paul's heart is bound up in these people. And these people's heart, this also comes through clearly in the letter, are bound up with the Apostle Paul. You see, the word of God here, even in this first chapter, is giving us insight to the very nature of the Christian life. Neither you nor I were ever intended to live out this thing as a, as a lone ranger. We were never to come at it like John Wayne. We were never to be individuals who attend a place and then we, 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 we leave that place. 
I had the privilege of going to one of the NCAA games that were held down here in Sacramento, and I was thinking about this. Here are 50,000 people, or whatever that thing holds, gathered together to root, some dressed in blue and some dressed in orange, some rooting for Princeton, somebody rooting for somebody else. And it just occurred to me that there's, there's, there's this immediate sort of burst because they've gathered together around this team, but when they depart from the place, they don't know each other, they don't care about each other. It was just a momentary flash in the pan sort of thing. Many people in the American culture, American evangelicalism, come together with just that sort of mindset, with just that sort of connection. We show up in our jerseys, we root for Jesus, and we go home. You and I were never designed to live like that. God called us out of the world And when he did it, he placed us into his church. He called us into this thing that is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. He brought us, if you will, into fellowship with him and with his people. Now that word gets thrown around a lot, doesn't it? We are, after all, Foothill Christian Fellowship. We have fellowship meals every first Sunday of the month. We talk about enjoying fellowship together. What what is this word, fellowship? Well, in Greek, the, the term is koinonia. I'm sure you've heard that before. And in its different grammatical forms, it's translated rather broadly. It refers to participation, to partnering, to sharing. It's translated sometimes communion. And it's translated fellowship. And so... Right from the church, right from the start, if, if you think of those things, participation, partnerships, sharing, communion, fellowship, can any of that be done as an individual? None of it. None of it. Right from the start, when we think church, this is something that you should take from this book and, and it should be implanted at the forefront of your mind that when we think church, we should fundamentally be thinking about relationship. The church can meet without a building. The church can worship apart from all of the, the machinery of what we do, of programs. But a church cannot exist apart from relationship, first and foremost, with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gift of God of the indwelling spirit who comes and then unites us, reconciles us to God. We have been joined through faith in Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. We have been reconciled to God. God gives us his spirit and there is a unity that is born in our midst Because we are now family, we are of the household of God. There is a relationship with God. That is first. But there is a horizontal dimension to that that is undeniable. We are brought into fellowship with God and we are brought into fellowship with one another. 1 John 1.3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John asks, why are we proclaiming that to you? Well, we're proclaiming it so that you may have fellowship with us. Fellowship, brothers and sisters, is not simply eating together. It is not simply hanging out. It is not simply spending time together. That's all part of it. But all of that only provides a context for fellowship to be pursued and and enjoyed. Jerry Bridges wrote a a book entitled True Community that sums up fellowship in four words. Here they are. Here's Bridges' summary of the the aspects of, of this koinonia. One is relationship. First with Christ, of course, and then with one another. We are brought into union with one another through the Spirit. Ephesians 4 4 to 6 says that we are all unified in one body with one spirit, one hope, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. All of that is the very things that have brought us into relationship and all of those things are the things we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we have been brought to be members of God's household, says Ephesians 2.19, knit together spiritually in Christ. And you know this, the Bible lays out many metaphors of a body. We heard that today from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're a temple of living stones. We're a flock. We're a kingdom. We're a family. But all of those share, while they may be distinct in some ways, share this fundamental reality that there are individuals who are brought in to a corporate whole. And we are bound together by the cords of love that God has loved us with in his son. So it begins with relationship. Bridges goes on to say, secondly, partnership. In fact, it's the word koinonia is used to describe Peter and James and their relationship with John in the fishing business. They had a partnership together. They had common goals. They had common pursuits. They spent time together in the pursuit of those common things. That's the way it is in the church. Bridges puts it this way. We are a community in action, enjoined in a partnership of bringing glory to God. So relationship, partnership, thirdly, communion. And by this he means we have, communion is often used to talk about the Lord's Supper, but that's not the way he's using it here. He's saying, look, there is among the the people of God a, a common life, a shared life together, common pursuits, common passions, common desires. We see this in Acts 2, don't we, in in, in verse 42, that that early church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were continually giving themselves to the word of God. But listen, secondly, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. In other words, you're not passive in this thing. It's not something that simply happens. Unity is there. We do share in a in a, in a, in a uh, organic fellowship with one another, that is true. That is positional. But the practical aspect and outworking of that fellowship is something that you must be devoted to, committed to, engaged in. They shared life with one another. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 calls us to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another. Do you see how much more this is than mere attendance, mere uh, gathering of the church once a week? It's very intentionally, frankly, I mean, the easiest way maybe to think about this is that that fellowship is worked out as we make a real effort to pursue the one another's with one another. When you come to those one another commandments in Scripture, highlight them. Because that, that is the way that fellowship is worked out. That is the way that love is worked out in the body of Christ. We do those things with one another. And I, I would encourage you to look at that list. Many of you have gone through the parenting class and you have a list of that. Put it on the fridge, contemplate it, meditate on it, pray according to it. Order your life according to those things. Relationship, partnership, communion, and finally, Bridges points out, sharing. And that is to say, not just sharing material things, but also sharing our lives, living transparently with one another. We are those who love one another. We are those who love not only in word, but we also love in deed and in truth We share in spiritual things, and that, of course, then results in the sharing of material things. And you see that even in the the letter to the Philippians as they, they were eager to share with the Apostle Paul and the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Joseph Hellerman also wrote a book entitled When the Church Was a Family. And it's an intriguing book because what he does is he looks back, considering those, that word that we are the household of God, he looks back at a first century family. And it looked a little different than ours did, ours do. It, 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 it had included in it the concept of a household, which would include slaves, and, and it, would include, it, it was broader. There were more people involved in this thing uh, that, that were there. 
And he looks at it and he says, here, here were four things that stood out when you considered that first century family, and, and most of these we'll be able to relate to. And I'll just give them to you briefly. But he says the church really should be reflecting these very things because we are the family of God. He says, first of all, we share our stuff with one another. Whose stuff is it, by the way? It's God's stuff, so we share our stuff. He says, secondly, we share our hearts with one another. Do you do that in your family? Living together is different than this kind of thing, isn't it? I've confessed to you before, I've seen 65-year-old men broken and burdened because they did not ever get to know the delight and the enjoyment of a father who spoke words of love and affection. I told you recently I'd read that book by a man, uh, Doug Wilson, who had written a book called, I was asked to review it by, by uh, uh, it's called Father Hunger, and he, he takes up the, the baptism of Christ, and he's saying, Here, here's a model for you dads. Look, God the Father was present. God the Father identified with his son. This is my son. God the Father loved his son. This is my beloved son. And God the Father, in the hearing of Christ and in the hearing of all who were gathered, this is my beloved son in whom I'm what well pleased. That is a model, dads. That is a good model for the kind of thing that you should be doing with your family. The kind of things, the kinds of words you should be speaking, the kind of heart affection that ought to exist in your heart toward your own kids. Hellerman says we share our stuff with one another, we share our hearts with one another. This one's trying, but boy, the, the chapter on this section is just so good. Listen to it. Here's number three. We stay, we embrace the pain, and we grow up with one another. And he goes on to point out that in the family, you just don't exit. You don't just abandon ship. The way that growth happens personally and corporately is through conflict through difficulty, through different personalities, through all the struggles that you go through in a family, the way we grow is by staying tight. He says, how much more in the church of Christ? I'll just give you, since it's free of charge anyway, I'll give you the pithy little statement. He says, if we go, we don't grow. He's not saying that there's never a right time to leave a church. I don't want to overstate the case. But we need to hear the other side of that, don't we? The American church is just replete with people who bounce around and never get their roots planted anywhere because they go from offense to offense to offense to offense. And lo and behold, these churches just cannot get their act together. That's right. Because we're a bunch of sinners gathered together by the grace of God. And the way that we demonstrate the gospel practically in our midst is that when difficulty arises, all those things that we learned in the gospel, that we're sinners, that we have sins that need to be confessed and forsaken, that forgiveness is costly, and that we must die to ourselves to, to extend that forgiveness to one another, and that relationships can in fact be reconciled. Have you learned that between you and God? You have, and it can work horizontally too. Beloved, we, we are not to be discouraged when there's challenges among us. We're to persevere through the challenge in the power of the Spirit, employing all those things that we've learned in our relationship with Christ toward one another, and when we do it and we stay and we're reconciled to one another and love continues to flame, What? Christ is put on display. We're the body of Christ. Has Christ been divided, Paul asks? We'll never finish by noon. 
We share our stuff with one another. We share our hearts with one another. We stay, embrace the pain. We grow up with one another. And fourthly, family is about more than me, the wife, and the kids. And again, he draws that from that ancient family. But there's, I'm not just thinking about the wits. There's more to it than this. And my concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ and their concern for me should be deep. We love each other enough to confront sin and to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And that goes outside the walls of 18 South Auburn Street, right? It, we, we are concerned for one another, and, and our family concern is deep. Fellowship is living together, seeking Christ together, striving together, suffering together, taking accountability for one another, rejoicing together, evangelizing together. And if we hang around long enough, you'll know this too. We will die together. There will be, there will be the sorrow together of, of watching us mixed with much joy, right? We do not grieve as those without hope, but the fact is we see this thing through to the end and there's this intentionality about it. We're bound up in this mutuality of our, of our faith in Christ and our pursuit of the things above, and so there's this vital connection. And by that I don't mean that it's important, though it is, it's vital in that it's living. We are connected to one another through a common life. Well, needless to say, true biblical fellowship is missing in much of the church today. We've lost this vision. And beloved, we need to regain it. We, we cannot fix everything out there, but we can begin with ourselves. And we can begin to see these things realized that are painted for us in the pages of Scripture. And as you come to the end of this letter, we're actually going to get to the text. When you come to the end of this letter, what you see again is Paul's affection for the church. He cannot just leave off. He's got the love of Christ for these people throbbing in his heart. And he must express it again, and he encourages them to express it toward one another. Let's look at our text. Verse 21. Philippians 4 and verse 21. Paul writes, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, this is your word, and again, we ask for divine insight. We pray that your spirit would illumine your text, make it bright and make it clear. Lord, may it light a fire within us, and may we be warmed by the warmth of the love that you have shed abroad in our hearts through faith in Christ. You are the God of love, and Lord, the distinguishing mark of your people is that love. So stir us up still more to love and good works, we pray. Amen. Well, it was customary at the time to conclude a letter with a farewell greeting, but one of the things that I want to remind you of again, and I reminded you of this at the beginning of this letter is that what might be common practice should not be viewed as convention or merely uh, incidental. Paul is not just signing off. This is not Paul saying, hey, look, say hello to the church. Sincerely, Paul. That is not what he's doing here. There is no verbal clutter in Scripture. Every word is inspired Every word is from the mouth of God. It is God-breathed and it is profitable. Every word and all the words, they're all there intentionally. And so this is a good time again to be reminded of the fact that if we will slow down and look carefully, we will find diamonds at our feet that we have never seen before. Look at this text. 
he begins with a call to express Christian affection. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it more carefully. He begins with a call to Christian affection, yes, but he begins with a call to express Christian affection. Note three times in our first and second verse, we see this word greet. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. This is a Greek word that is fun to say. It's aspazomai. You can go ahead and say it if you want. Get it on your tongue. It feels good. You, whether you can pronounce it or not, though, you need to do it. This word means to enfold in the arms. This is a word that means to embrace and to greet with affection. Maybe you remember back in Romans chapter 16, but Paul writes more than 20 times, aspadzomai this person, and aspadzomai this couple, and aspadzomai, that's a long word to spell out 20 times in a chapter. Imagine hearing that. Paul, why didn't you just say, hey, greet the people for me, will you? That's a serious question. Why, why would he write that out? Name by name, person by person, greet this person, greet this person, greet this person. Over and over and over again, he writes it. And when you look at this term in context, in the broad use of it in the New Testament, and it is used many times, when you look at it, you get this sense of the sincere love and the warmth of affection that that underlies the term. This is not the way we normally take a word to greet. Paul's already expressed this. I read it to you back in chapter 1 and verse 7 and 8 where Paul says it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I've, I've got you in my heart. God is my witness. He calls God to the witness stand so that God might affirm that this is true of Paul. What? How I long for you all with the affection of Christ. You see, Christ had affection for the Philippians. Christ has affection for you. And it's deep. And he bore that kind of love and affection for you out on the cross, did he not? And that says something at the level of the kind of affection that we ought to have for one another. In fact, John calls us to it. He says, beloved, we should love each other. And just like Jesus laid his life down for the church, so you ought to for one another. There is a parallel in all of this. Christ is the fountain, but it is bubbling up in Paul's heart. And it should be bubbling up in ours. And that's the undercurrent of this call to express Christian affection. Paul is saying, look, affectionately greet every saint in Christ Jesus. I love this. One commentator said, these greetings were from the heart to the heart. It is love that is the distinguishing mark of Christ's people. There are many of them. But God plants in the soil of our hearts his own love for his people, which is why John, the apostle, writes over and over again in 1 John that if you have not love, you are not his. It cannot be that you can profess love for Christ and have no regard for your brother in Christ. This family, God's family, is bound up in love and affection, every one of them. which is why Paul writes to the Thessalonians, listen to this. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. Romans 5.5 5. 
The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I love the way Peter puts it. 1 Peter 1, 23, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. In other words, in coming to Christ, your souls were, were purified and in that what once was a hateful, hating one another sort of heart, now that heart has become purified and there is a sincere love for the brethren in there. And so Peter says, therefore what? Fervently love one another from the heart. In other words, what exists within you should be coming out of you. And that with a fervency. There is no question that love is the telltale birthmark of the believer. Because our God, who is love and who loved us with an everlasting love, is the very teacher of love who tutors each and every one of his children to love one another. You see, he installs it in the hearts of his people. We get a divine download at salvation. And it is a divine download that is chock full of warmth and love and affection for God first and then for his people, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's, it's not surprising at all, is it, that where there is this genuine love, <laughs> there's got to be a way to let it out. You ever thought that way about worship? You ever felt like you would burst if you couldn't sing. I've been so thankful for the gift of song at times because I literally thought I would explode I, I, and that would be messy, right? There is at times, maybe you know this in your own soul, I, I trust that at some level you do. My guess is you do and you're restraining it. You're either too embarrassed or you're too fearful or, or you're just not quite sure that this is right, that you should feel this kind of thing for your brother or sister in Christ, listen, God put it in you that it might come out of you toward one another so that the church might be built up in what? Love, right? There's got to be a way to express this thing. And so this is why at times this brotherly greeting that Paul is encouraging us to here often is joined, and you knew this was coming, but it is joined with the expression of a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20, greet with another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We'll skip over to Peter for a minute, but 1 Peter 5 and verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Some of you are sweating. I know it, and we'll talk about it in a minute. You know that this practice of embracing and kissing is something that's very common in the Middle East. It was a very common form of greeting in the ancient world. But again, Paul's not saying, look, hey, look to the form. What Paul is saying is, no, fervently love one another from the heart, and the way that bears itself out is, is with a very sincere and warm and affectionate expression. And in the Middle East, it might be for those believers that holy kiss. Oftentimes, it's just a demonstration of respect and honor, but among friends and among family and certainly here among the church, it was a show of warmth and affection. And Paul says it is to be holy. Let's all get that across. There's no romance in it. There's nothing sexual about it. There's nothing evil about this at all. 
There was a time in my life not too many years ago when I almost abandoned the word love because our culture had made such a mess of it. I had a sister here rebuke me the other day and remind me, we don't let the culture take our words, and that's right. There should not be a bone in your body. Yes, we ought to be careful about such things, but there should not be a bone in your body that says, you know what, we live in a world where it's just not safe to really talk to people much. I could get sued. I could lose it, lose it around here. This kind of warmth and affection cannot happen when people are walking around in suspicion and in fear and in independence and a sense of pride. We had a dear brother who was here for many years, and he used to greet me on occasion with a a whiskery kiss on the cheek. And it was strange. (laughs) But it was utterly biblical. He greeted some of you that way too, I know. It's not so much the cultural practice that's important, beloved, but it is the warmth and the affection that underlies it, and it's the demonstration of that warmth and affection that Paul is after. Your greeting is to be warm, it is to be familial, it is to be sincere, and it is to be expressed. I'm a private person. Not if you're obedient. back at the text, greet, note this, every saint in Christ Jesus. When he uses this word greet, he uses the form of the verb which delineates a command. It's a duty that we are beholden to as Christ's people. And beloved, It is to go out towards every saint. There is not a saint in this congregation who is outside the scope of this commandment. And there should not be a saint in our midst that we are not able to go to and to greet sincerely and with love and affection. If there are people on your radar where that is not the case, well, that is not okay. It's not okay to sit on that side because there's somebody on this side or to go through that door because there's somebody coming through this door. This is on all of us. And I love this. The, the, the subject of this verb is plural. In other words, and, it, and it's assumed, it is you all. You all are to do the greeting and the object of that greeting is singular. Therefore, he's saying, you all greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Some have questioned who exactly this commandment is directed to. Some believe it's directed, it's from Paul, directed to the elders and the deacons, the leadership of the church. You remember they were mentioned back in chapter 1 and verse 1. To all the saints who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, some are thinking Paul is sending his greeting to these elders and deacons, and the elders and deacons are to gather at the back of the church and greet every saint. That may be. You cannot tell in this text alone. It doesn't answer that question, but I would point this out. Others think it was given to the whole body, and I'm one of them. I believe that this commandment was given to the whole of the Philippian congregation to focus then down onto each individual in the Philippian congregation. You'll notice also in verse 1-1 that the whole body was mentioned to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, not just the elders and the deacons. And Paul's pattern in the broader uh, context of all of his epistles, what you see is this greeting going forth, and it's a call of one another to do this to one another. 
One thing, though, that is mistakably clear, uh, unmistakably clear in this, in this text is this, that every single brother and sister in Christ is to be greeted this way, and that should stick with us. This is not a broadcast, general, sweeping greeting of all the saints. This is very direct. It's very personal. It's very intentional. It's very affectionate. And it is a greeting that goes to each and every saint in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, all of you greet each of you. Now, you'll notice that we're to greet the saints in Christ Jesus. And grammatically, this could be taken a couple of ways. Paul may have tied that in Christ Jesus to the greeting itself. In other words, is Paul saying, uh, I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that what we're supposed to do? That may be. Or it may be that the in Christ Jesus actually describes the saint. We are saints in Christ Jesus. In other words, greet every brother and sister who are truly in Christ in your midst. I don't think it's critical to settle the issue. The point that Paul is trying to make by, by adding on this piece of in Christ Jesus, he's just pointing to the very unification that we have in him. He is our great unifier. We have some brothers and sisters here who enjoy riding motorcycles. I enjoy riding motorcycles. We might find that as a common interest. But that's not the foundation of Christian fellowship, though we may all be Christians. Riding motorcycles is incidental, isn't it, to the real things that unify us, that knit us together. It's not that we have a common interest in gardening. It's not that we school our kids the same way. It's not that we have a love for family and we have children the same age and therefore we relate well with one another. It's not even that we come to FCF. That is not it. The foundation, the core, the thing that knits us together in all of this is the unity and brotherhood and the common salvation that we share in Christ, that we have an indwelling spirit and we have the Father's eternal love and grace that we have known and tasted of and we want to share that with our spiritual siblings. Now let's pull over here for just a minute. Beloved, do you, do you see the heart of this? Are you tracking with this? Do you have just in your own conscience as you as, as you as you evaluate this can you can you honestly face this question do you have this sort of pathos this kind of passion this depth of feeling this heart affection do you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ here With Judgment Day honesty before God, can you say you love the saints? That's a, that's, a, that's a fundamental question. It's so foundational. There's a second question that's related, and that is, would your brothers and sisters in Christ here, how would they answer that question? about you. You get what I'm asking? Do you love the saints with this kind of in intensity, this kind of commitment, this sort of depth of, of heart and love and affection? And you might say to me, yeah, absolutely I do. I, I do love the people here. I love every saint in Christ Jesus. Do others know it? Have others seen it in you? Have others heard it from you? By the depth of your commitment to this gathering of God's people, would they say, yeah, that man is concerned about us because he's just there. And he's always caring for people. She's there. 
She attends, she ministers, she sacrifices, she, she loves, she conveys that love. You see, it's sort of like gratitude and thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about it? We, we've talked about this before. Gratitude and thanksgiving are not the same thing. Gratitude is an attitude that exists in the heart. But what do you tell your kids? Well, assuming they're truly grateful for the gift they got at Christmas, what do you tell them about New Year's? You had better sit down. (laughs) You know those thank you notes I stuck in your stocking, honey? You need to sit down and write Grandpa and Grandma a thank you note. Why? Because you're trying to teach them that gratitude is not enough. That gratitude must be expressed or it falls short. So it is here. You can have all the love and affection in the world deep down in your gut, but brother and sister, have you made a point of getting that out and forward and to your brothers and sisters in Christ? These things are are not to be neglected among Christ's people. But I can hear the thinking and I can hear the justifying even now. There's Dave droning on again. Don't you understand I'm a busy man and I don't have time for that kind of thing. To do that would require me to stick around. And you're right. You cannot do this on the run. You've got to be there when the church gathers and you've got to stay long because I preach long, and you realize that you, you've got to be here afterwards, or, or maybe it's that visit or that sh- cup of coffee at a, at a coffee shop, but somehow this is costly. There's, there's no question about that. Now you say, well, I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm not doing this. I am not that expressive. That's kind of sissified. That's for weenies and wimps. I wouldn't call Jesus that, nor would I call the Apostle Paul that, or Peter. Peter beat you up if you said that to him, right? Listen, Mr. Non-Expression, is this a commandment or not? That's really the question, isn't it? What are you telling me? I've got to take down all the John Wayne posters out of, my, out of my man cave? No, I'm not telling you that at all. We want men who are men, but understand that Jesus defines the man, not John Wayne. And you've got to be able to look at John Wayne and remember, that's all in the movies. <laughs> this is real life, and this is what you were called to. And someone else says, look, I, I'm feeling threatened by others. I, I prefer to sit back and let them come to me. And to that I say, beloved, That is not what this text says. You're not to sit on a wall and say, I will wait for people to fulfill their duty to come and greet me in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an active commandment that goes to you to go out and to greet every saint. Are you shy? Give it up. Get going. Obey the Lord in this thing. It will be good for you and it will be good for the church. Eye to eye, hand to hand, holy warmth and affection, freely given and freely received. This, beloved, is a gift of God to his people, and it is his will for us in Christ Jesus. It's been wonderful to muse on this. Because I think about it, I think about it as a preventative. I think about it as a tonic. We talked earlier about the fact that, that doing these things strengthens that, that bond of love. And love is the perfect bond of unity. And when we put it on, we're, we're dwelling together in unity. And that is glorious. And so in that sense, it, 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 it solves some problems. Love covers a multitude of sins. But think about it. How many clicks... I hear that complaint. I have heard it over the course of my ministry. I remember hearing it when I was in high school. The church is full of cliques. How many cliques would be broken down and prevented if we determined to go out to every saint in Christ Jesus? 
Some people rightfully have the complaint that nobody here really seems to care for me. I feel for that. It's a temptation, isn't it, to just hang with those that we like, those who are into the things that I'm into, those that I feel comfortable around, but that's not what the commandment calls us to. Every saint. If that person is in Christ Jesus and therefore a saint, then that's enough for me. Whether they're tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white, bad breath, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Every saint. I think about the insecurities that I often hear and that I often know personally within the church, and I think how many of those insecurities might be laid to rest in the, in the regular reaffirmation of our love for one another. Anybody ever had this thought, I wonder if I offended that person, I don't know. We used to be, they used to talk to me, but the last few times I've seen them, it just seems like they're kind of walking around me. Uh, uh, you ever live with that sort of gnawing insecurity that, that maybe people are upset at you or don't like you? They looked at me funny. We've all, we've all known that. Well, how about if we bursted through all of that on a regular basis to affirm our love, to look each other in the eye and say, brother, my brother in Christ, you are a delight to me. My brother, I identify you. My beloved brother, I love you. And I am pleased with you. What a joy you are to me. Why don't we say that stuff to one another? Some of you do. I heard from a woman I went to visit this last week, and she talked about a, an older woman in our congregation, talked about a man in this church. He just comes up behind me, and he just, I can, he just loves me. He just dives in. He crashes in. He's not, and I, I know the guy. I'm like, yep. <laughs> I love that. May there be more of those people in our midst. One of the best things I ever heard, Martin Lloyd-Jones said to, to budding pastors, be yourself, forget yourself. And we struggle on both accounts. Because there's love burgeoning in our hearts. And what our real self would want to say is, I appreciate you, I love you, and Lord, and I am just so grateful for you. Brother, you encourage me. Sister, I saw you doing this thing the other day. It's a humbling example. I am so thankful for your service to the Lord. This church is richer because of your giftedness. I am so glad you're here. I think those things, but why don't I say them? Right? You think them. Man, would that knock out some insecurities. I think of how this kind of embrace would overcome and extinguish the seeds of bitterness in the heart. This kind of thing crushes pride. It promotes humility. It promotes tenderness. This kind of thing bolsters the heart and it builds up believers and it encourages the soul and it strengthens our bonds of love for one another and it's, it's just so good. And, and you think about this even at a, at a greater level. We are the hands and feet of Christ, aren't we not? We are. We are his body. So when this kind of love is demonstrated on a horizontal plane among brethren who truly and intimately and sincerely love one another, what are we experiencing through our brother in Christ? Well, we're experiencing the very love of God for us. You get to convey the love of God, the grace of God, the affection of God, the kindness of God, the acceptance of God. You ever been there before, stuck in your sin and discouraged about it, and somebody comes alongside of you and says, Brother, I accept you. This thing does not separate you from the Lord because he has given his son for you. And those sins were washed away once and forever as far as east is from west. And I want you to know, I don't hold it against you either. I know what it is to be in your shoes. I've been tempted in these very things, and I struggle. And all of a sudden, your chin comes up off the, off the floor, doesn't it? You see how valuable this is? 
Beloved, I, I pray, I pray earnestly that we would love still more and more and that we would grow in our free and unfettered expression of that love, both in word and in service to one another. Now, I, I need to wrap up, and we need to get to the, the final verse here. I'm just going to give this to you very quickly. Paul says, look, there are other people who feel this way about you too, Philippians. They want to get in on the action. And so Paul says, the brethren who are with me, likely those who are ministering with Paul, Timothy and Luke and Tychicus, among others, they want a piece of the action. They want to express their mutual love and affection for you. And then Paul says, all the saints. That's referring to all the saints at Rome the entire fellowship of the church, and then he narrows it down to a subset, and he says, especially those of Caesar's household. And what an encouragement that must have been for the Philippians to know that while Paul was in prison preaching to prisoners, those prisoners were taking that gospel out and even into Caesar's household. The gospel had penetrated in to the height of ungodliness. It had, it had, plundered, <laughs> it had plundered Caesar's household. I don't think this probably refers to Caesar's blood relatives necessarily, but it, it points to those who served in Caesar's palace. And another point I wish I could develop, but I just want you to note it. Paul here is building bridges, isn't he, between believers in different geographic locations, which is one of the reasons why we had John Paul up here not too long ago. We want your heart to be knit to his this is why we need to visit missionaries. This is why we need to have them here. This is why we should be praying for other churches in the local area. We dare not come of a mindset that this church has got it all together and every other church struggles and they really should learn some things from us. No, that's not the point. We are God's children bound together in Christ and by the Spirit, and we love his people everywhere. And Paul's saying, look, all of those in Rome want to say something to you. We love you. We care about you. We greet you. Tom Schreiner sums this up nicely. Paul's greetings express the love that was the mark of the early Christian community. I don't even like that he writes that. It was the mark of the early Christian community. I want it to be the mark of our Christian community, and it is. I'm not saying anything today by way of correction, brothers and sisters. I, I'm, I rejoice to be part of this congregation and to know the love that is here I've seen it, and I've known it personally. And Schreiner goes on, they express the solidarity and affection between those who belong to the Lord. They're not merely secular hellos, but they're rooted in the new life of Christ. The very core of the gospel is love for others, and Paul expresses that love in these greetings. Well, there's a final prayer for grace in verse 23. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And again, this is not a nebulous way of signing off. He's reminding them again that they are in Christ because of the grace of God. And he wants them to know, and he is wishing this for them, and he is praying this for them, that the Lord's grace would be even more evident in their life going forward. You really can't sign off better than this. Which is why Paul says grace and peace all the time. And you think, you know, these people already had experienced the grace of God. Why are they, uh, why are they, why, why is Paul saying this to them? Well, it's because they need to be reminded like we need to be reminded. We live by the grace of God. We are dependent upon the goodness of our God. We have been saved by grace. We stand by grace. We're secured in grace. We are daily dependent upon grace. And beloved, we can never, 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 never have enough of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. And so Paul wishes for even more upon their heads. So ends the book of Philippians, and we must say goodbye, and we're going to, we'll see them again in Acts chapter 16, I trust. We're going to go to the book of Acts in a couple of weeks. Um, but let me say these things just in closing. May the, may the grace of the Lord be ours in even greater 
measure for considering the things that we have considered in this book. The Lord has given us this book for our own growth in grace. And may we make earnest and zealous to live these things out, not just to hear them, but to do them. Remember what Paul said about us, that that we should live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Because we need to prove ourselves blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world. Our light shines brighter when our love is greater. May we still abound in the love of Christ more and more with every passing day. We're going to stand and sing We Are God's People, a great hymn. It celebrates the fellowship that we enjoy in the Lord. And I want you to note that every stanza closes with a call to live out this fellowship. I'll draw your attention to just one statement in here. He, he draws upon that old illustration of a bunch of coals in a fire. And he says, we die alone, for on its own each ember loses fire, yet joined in one flame burn on to give warmth and light and to inspire. Let's sing together and be glad in our God who has knit us together in his son. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our hearts are grateful and humbled again at the reminder of your deep and undying love for your people. You have loved us from eternity past, and you have chosen us as your own, and you have called us into fellowship with yourself, and you have, Lord, rent the veil from top to bottom, and you did it through the blood of your Son who is the very choice and objective expression of the depth of your love, Lord, that you would give your only begotten Son so that those who believe in him might have eternal life and not perish, but live forever and in perfect fellowship with you. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit who indwells us, who has knit us together in unity, who sheds abroad the the love of Christ in our hearts for one another. And Lord, we thank you for your great work on our behalf. And we are not perfect yet, but we are not who we once were. We know that. We have seen your work in our midst. Lord, you have promised to complete that which you have begun in us. And so we anticipate that you will take these truths and multiply them to our hearts so that we might grow still more and more in the likeness of Christ. And as we do that, Lord, be more and more deeply and truly and affectionately in love with you and with one another. May your love abound here. May it be evident in our midst. May we express it freely and gladly and appropriately, but Lord, always with an eye to to speaking forth that which you have shed abroad in our hearts that we might be built up in love, encouraged in the pursuit of the things above. May you shine the love of Christ through this place out into the world. Lord, may we be, in fact, that light shining brightly in this dark generation. And Lord, we ask these things not just for this church, but for your church. And we're confident, Lord, that you will answer this prayer knowing that it is your will. We ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen.